All right, let's go ahead and get started. So the groups that are meeting outside can finish up and come into the sanctuary. We will get started. Well, good evening, everyone. It is good to be with you all. Uh, let's just start off by reading our passage um, for today. It's going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read that for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths, Lord, meant to give us hope and give us assurance, Lord, of the things that we've received. Namely, we received your spirit who is in us. Even though we still struggle against sin, even though we still struggle against the flesh, these things are still present in some capacity in our lives, Lord. We know and we have full confidence and hope, Lord, that we can put off those things and walk in righteousness that you achieve for us, Lord. So we thank you for these truths, and I just pray that as we impact this tonight, Lord, that it would give us hope, um, that it would point us towards what you have given to us, Lord, and turn us away from the flesh. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we'll be continuing in our journey through the book of Romans this evening, and it has been quite the journey. We've gone from Romans 1, where we were in the depths of despair, discussing the total depravity of man and uh, just we moved on to justification by faith and then we moved on to grace through one man in christ and then we moved on to freedom from the law that's the journey we've been taking and most recently in romans 7 this struggle that we have as believers with the law versus the flesh there is a reality that believers are still caught in a battle between sin and there is an internal conflict and a tension between the fact that we're new creations in Christ, completely transformed, different from the old self, but also that reality that there's still sin and the things that the old self would do as well. So we are justified, we are redeemed, we are made new, and yet sin still shows up in our lives 
And Paul, in chapter 7, very memorably describes the struggle of doing the very thing that he hates because his flesh works against him. And that culminates with his exasperated cry of, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is where Romans 8 picks up. Having acknowledged the very real presence of a struggle within us, Paul goes on to explain to us why even though we do struggle, we can have abundant and certain hope. And spoiler alert, it's because we're not alone. So when you are going on a hike up a mountain, there are usually particular stopping points that most people will stop at to take a breather and just soak in the views to appreciate all the progress that they made up until that point. And if our journey through Romans were a hike, Romans 8 would clearly be one of these stopping points. And in fact, it may actually be the summit. Romans chapter 8, appropriately falling right in the middle of Paul's 16th chapter epistle to the Romans, it stands at the pinnacle of Paul's theological arguments. The grand declarations that Paul makes throughout chapter 8 are the culmination of all of the meticulous bricklaying that he's been undertaking for several chapters. So we've been climbing this theological mountain with Paul ever since chapter 1, with each step being built upon the last, and now we reach the summit. And we're greeted with this sweeping vista that takes our breath away. Everything that the Apostle Paul has written up to this point has enabled him now to resoundingly and triumphantly declare what he does in chapter 8, verse 1. A declaration that has become a precious anthem to countless wretched and guilty sinners throughout church history and even today, taking us from despair to overwhelming hope and joy. And what is that declaration? It is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus today, there is no condemnation for you. And praise God for that. And even more than that, if it could possibly get better than that, while we are still weak to put off our sin and live as our new selves in Christ, we still can because we have the power of God in his spirit. You see, when God saves us, he doesn't simply justify us and then leave us to wage war against our sin on our own. No, he's present in our fight against sin as well. He is the one who justifies us, declares us legally righteous, but he is also the one who sanctifies us and practically purifies us in our own lives. You see, a lot of times we'll do this thing where we separate justification and sanctification. And I get why we do that. And I do that myself. I've literally stood up here with slides explaining the differences between justification and sanctification. And we do this because it helps us to talk about the distinctions between the aspect of salvation that has already been accomplished legally and positionally as compared to the ongoing aspect of salvation that is a continual work. But sometimes it's actually not helpful to think of them separately because they're not separate. They are part of the same whole of God's saving work. And while we deconstruct the salvation work of God to better understand it, the salvation of God 
does not actually exist in a deconstructed state, does it? The different ways to look at salvation can't exist as separate components. As Paul clarifies later in this very chapter, Romans 8, 29, says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So predestination, foreknowledge, justification, sanctification, glorification, these are all different facets of the one saving work of God in a believer's life. But none of them exist apart from each other. All to say that if you have been justified, you can't separate that reality from the reality that God is currently at work in you through his spirit, present in your fight against sin and against the flesh. You have help. And not just like a helping hand or an assist, but as much help as a dead man would need in order to walk. That's the kind of help that we're getting. So let's break this down together. And uh, our first point for today, it's the Spirit frees us from the condemnation of the law. The Spirit frees us from the condemnation of the law. And we find that in verses 1 through 4, and I'll read that again for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So coming out of chapter 7, rather than just leaving us in that struggle between our new self and our old self, Paul lifts us out of that struggle into a reality of hope and triumph. Even though you struggle with sin, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. Such a simple statement, but for many, it's so hard to fathom. The word condemnation, it speaks of the state of being condemned or declared guilty. In many ways, you can think of that as the opposite of being justified. But it also speaks to the penalty or the punishment that is due to someone who is declared guilty. Condemnation is your verdict, guilty, and it's also your sentence, God's wrath and hell. Now, the text says, now. And yes, it's going to be one of those messages where we stop on every word. Now. Because before Christ, there was condemnation for you. But now, there was, but now, there is not. Before now, there was nothing but condemnation. So if you recall, the first few books, or the first few chapters of the book of Romans, goes into great lengths to detail and demonstrate the universal condemnation due to all mankind. Jews are guilty and condemned. Gentiles are guilty and condemned. All are guilty and condemned. And before Christ, you were guilty and condemned. Not in some unsettled state, kind of teetering between maybe condemned and maybe not, not like a, like a scale in some kind of equilibrium. No, before Christ, the scales were tipped all the way on the condemned side. You were so condemned that there was really no arguing 
or no negotiating or reasoning to kind of tip things or move things in your favor. We were all condemned. But because of Christ's death and resurrection and our faith in him, that is now no longer the case. What was true before that we were already condemned with no hope of anything else, that's no longer true. What happened? Christ happened. Now means that now, present state, at this very moment, there is no condemnation for you. While heaven is a future hope that is not here yet, you don't have to wait until heaven to have the assurance that you are not condemned. You can be assured now. You don't have to wait until that moment that you first open your eyes after you die and you have to look around to confirm where you are to know that you're not condemned. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, it's true now, not later, now. When Paul says no condemnation, no means none. Not even a little bit for, you know, the sins that you might commit after being saved or the ones that Christ didn't know about. This is not a delayed sentence while your trial gets stayed for a period of time just to be resumed later and your verdict to be given to you. There's not going to be a time when the case against you gets reopened because of some additional evidence against you. It's not a reduced sentence for good behavior. It's not a reduced sentence. It's no sentence for you, at least not for you. All the evidence has been gathered. Your case has been concluded, never to come back, and your sentence has been carried out in full. There is no punishment left for you to serve. What that means is you can't sin your way back into condemnation. John 5.24 states, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. In other words, he is not condemned, but has passed from death to life. I think uh, if you guys can move on to the next slide, I think we're uh, on some of these points there. And that's good news for us. It's amazing news for us even. But this good news is only good news for some You see, while all of us stood before God condemned, only some of us are condemned no longer. Everyone who is not in Christ remains condemned. The text tells us that only those who are in Christ Jesus are not condemned. Stated another way, if you are not in Christ Jesus, you are still condemned. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So without Christ, we are fully and utterly condemnable. If you remove Christ, you remove the entire basis of our salvation, and what's left are guilty, depraved, and condemned enemies of God. But thanks be to God that those who have faith in Christ are in Christ and freed from that condemnation. Moving on, verse 2, it introduces the role of the Spirit in our freedom from condemnation. So in your exegesis groups, one of the sections asks you to look for repeated words. One of the words that you cannot possibly miss when going through your exegesis is the word Spirit. In verse 2, it's revealed that the law of the Spirit 
has freed you from the law that would have otherwise condemned you. So how does the law of the Spirit free a believer from condemnation? Because I thought that condemnation came through the law and salvation came apart from the law. How then are we saved? Are we saved by some different set of requirements or commandments that we have to keep? So when Paul references the law of the Spirit of life, he isn't referring to a different set of commandments per se, but he is referring to the power of the Spirit to free someone from the condemnation of the law. Paul simply uses the word law so that he can construct a contrast between what used to rule the life of the believer before they were regenerated, the power of sin and death, to what rules the life of a believer after they're saved, the power of the Spirit through Christ. In other words, you're no longer subject to the law of sin and death. You had to obey before. It ruled over you. It was your master. It was your law, but no longer. What freed you from the old law and what rules you now is the spirit of life. You are no longer under the power and penalty of your sin, but you're free to live a new life under a new authority. Now, the law itself, I'm sure you guys discussed in your groups, the law itself is not bad because God's law comes from a good and holy God and it highlights his character and his nature. The law is good, but it doesn't save us. The law was never meant to save us. Though the law reveals to us what righteousness is, we can't achieve righteousness through the law because our flesh is not capable. When the text says that the law is weakened by the flesh, it's emphasizing that the law can't serve as a means of salvation, not because the law itself is lacking or deficient or flawed in any way, but it's because we in our flesh are unable to keep it. The flesh is opposed to God. So how could it possibly achieve God's righteousness through God's law? It's opposed to him. Instead, the law makes it clear for us. It shows us that we need God himself to do what flesh cannot do through the law, which is save us from our sin. So the law shows us how sinful we are and that you and your flesh are opposed to God and unable to keep his holy standards so that we would instead turn to and rely on someone outside of ourselves, God himself, to save us. And what follows in the next few verses, detailing and describing this law of the spirit of life, is none other than a restatement of the good news of the gospel. Just to reread for us, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you are in Christ, these truths in verse 3 are precisely why there is no condemnation for you. Whereas the law condemned you because of your sin, God condemned your sin in the flesh through Christ, who took on flesh, so that now sin's penalty and that condemnation are gone. Christ's righteousness fulfilled the requirements of the law that we could not, and by faith, that righteousness is imputed or credited to us. And now we walk according to that righteousness, not in the flesh that remains, but according to his spirit whom he has given us. So now the spirit enables us not only to understand 
and believe the gospel, but also to live our lives according to it. Paul describes believers, those who've been saved by the work of Christ, as those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So not only has Christ justified us, we are also being sanctified as well. Remember, you can't separate justification and sanctification. They're part of the same work. If you're justified, the fruit of that justification will show up in your life right now because it's in you. Paul says that Christ died, condemning sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us, meaning this shows up practically in our lives. Now, certainly Christ fulfilled the requirement of the law for us, meaning on our behalf, but it is also filled in us. We're not separate from righteousness now. This is not like a remote transaction that we're disconnected from somehow. It's a transaction that also transforms you, that changes you, that lives and works in you. It's kind of like this. Christ paying our debt is not like Christ covering your bill for you. It's Christ making you rich. See the difference? If a friend covers your bill, you're still poor. But when Christ covers your bill, he makes you rich. He changes not just your debt, but he changes you. Paying your bill is justification. Making you rich is sanctification. It's not one or the other. Christ does both. The goal of your salvation isn't just that you would avoid suffering in hell, but that you would walk in holiness. And this is something that the old you can't do. The old you is only flesh. So you could only walk in the flesh. The new you has been given the spirit and you can walk in righteousness empowered by his spirit. Ezekiel way back in Old Testament here, Ezekiel 36, 27 alludes to this. It says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That passage is alluding to the then future work of God, giving a new spirit and a new heart to his people, making them a people who walk in righteousness. So not only are God's people deemed or declared righteous positionally, they are remade to act righteously practically. It's something that's only possible for those who've been given his spirit. And this takes us to our next point. The spirit transforms our minds. The spirit transforms our minds. And we see this in verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't. And those who have received the Holy Spirit, you didn't always have the Holy Spirit. 
everyone at some point in their lives did not have the Spirit of God. And so these descriptions of those who live according to the flesh, this once described you, whether you're saved or not, this once described you. See, if you remove the Spirit, we're just left with our fleshly, natural minds, unable to discern the wisdom of God. Without the Spirit, we would hear the truths of the gospel and we would call that foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. However, if we are in Christ, then we're not just the natural fleshly person anymore. That same passage in 1 Corinthians 2 says that we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us. It changes our mind, our understanding. It even says that we have the mind of Christ. Once we are in Christ Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, we are able to think in a completely different and transformed way. Your mind no longer has to be set on the flesh and the world. It is set on the things of the Spirit. Before, that wasn't even an option. Now, it's your calling to think and to walk according to the Spirit of God. So what does it mean to have your mind set? To have your mind set on something is for your thinking to be inclined or bent in a particular direction. But more simply, what do you dwell on? What do you think about? Are your thoughts inclined towards certain things as opposed to other things? I don't know why I thought of this, but I kind of think of a lane at a bowling alley. And if the lane is tilted one way, every ball that you throw tends towards that direction. And you wonder, why does it keep on going that way? Because it tilted that way. And it's similar to have our mind set in a particular direction. This passage lays out only two possible directions for us. We can either be setting our minds on the things of the flesh or setting our minds on the things of the spirit. One or the other. You're one of these two and there's no third option. Either you are pursuing the things of God on the one hand or everything opposed to God on the other hand. Now, just to clarify, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about your literal flesh, your organic tissue, skin, muscles, fat, organs. He just uses the term flesh as a helpful way to refer to your old self, your old fallen identity in contrast to your new identity in Christ. So when Paul talks about your flesh here, he's talking about our fallen nature. The natural orientation and the disposition of our heart to operate independently and in opposition to God. All of that is called the flesh. The flesh is what desires to live for oneself and for the things of the world without acknowledging God as God. The flesh is what suppresses the truth of God in favor of unrighteousness. Essentially, what we studied in Romans 1 is the work of the flesh. Now back to our passage in Romans 8, verses 7 to 8 help describe this for us in more detail. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It says that our flesh is what's hostile to God. And not only 
does not submit to God's law, they can't submit to God's law. And ultimately, those who are in the flesh can't please God. Not possible. No matter how much the flesh may strive and try and work and achieve, those who are in the flesh are operating in opposition to God and cannot please him. This is more than just your bowling lane being tilted towards the gutter. It's you bowling in the wrong direction towards the concession stand or something like that. So then, what does setting your mind on the things of the Spirit look like? One way that we set our minds on the things of the Spirit is to conform our minds to the Scriptures rather than the world. Because we know that the Spirit of God and the Word of God work in conjunction with one another. God's Word does not contradict the Spirit and work outside the Spirit, and Spirit does not contradict God's Word. Our natural minds are shaped by the world, the ruler of the world, and our own sinful desires. That's our natural state. Without the Word of God reshaping that, molding our thoughts and our minds to his patterns instead, our minds would just remain there. I don't know about you, but if I go for a season where I'm not in the Word as much, or I'm not really paying attention and my time in the Word is just, okay, I just need to get through these however many verses to fulfill my quiet time quota, I start thinking much more like the world. And when I read the Word, it clashes with the way that my flesh wants to go and the way that my flesh wants to think. But if I continue in His Word, His Word then starts to chip away at that worldly thinking, and my thinking shifts and my desires and actions shift towards desiring less of the world and desiring more of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, the flesh will still resist and will continue to resist. But the more that we set our minds on the things of the Spirit by choosing to put our attention towards God's Word and believe God's Word, rather than choosing to saturate our minds with the things of the world, it changes our thinking. It changes our desires. It changes our actions. And ultimately, it reveals the very nature of your entire life, whether it's characterized by life and peace, and spirit of life and peace, or whether it's dead. Verse 6 sums it up with no uncertain terms. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So the question for us is, in the pattern of your life right now, are you setting your mind on the things of the flesh? Or is your mind saturated with worldly things, things that are temporary and frivolous, rather than the reality of a world where God is sovereign over all and he has a calling for you. Over time, is the trajectory of your life one of yielding yourself more and more to the authority and the influence of the Spirit and his word in your life? Or is your mind, and by extension your life, becoming more worldly as time goes on? As your life stretches on, do you grow more attached to the trappings of this world? or less. Where your heart is, that is where your desires, your thoughts, your will are centered on, that will dictate where your life goes. So is your mindset on the things of the spirit or on the things of the flesh? Because it will show up in your life. 
for those who are in Christ, our minds are no longer to be captive and dominated by the ideas and the views of the world, but instead we are to take every thought captive for the sake of obeying Christ. Now, I don't want to leave any of us with the idea that you just need to do better and think better thoughts, that if somehow you discipline yourself more, then all of this would describe you. I warn you of this because it's what I am guilty of as well. If we just treat these things as a call to be better and do better, that's actually just a slippery slope and a back door right back to walking in the flesh. When we make it about what we can do to make ourselves fit what being a Christian looks like instead of about what God has done and what God has provided in his spirit to work in us and through us, then we're just spinning the wheels of the flesh. I'll say it again because we need to hear it again and again. God does not stop his work at justification. I've gone and justified you. The rest is up to you now. Just try hard now. Remember that our flesh tries to separate justification and sanctification and then turn sanctification into a work that we can do ourselves. And no, our sanctification is the continued work of God's salvation in our lives where he has supplied us with his spirit to dwell in us so that we walk in his ways only by the power of the spirit. The whole thing is God's work. Even your striving, even your straining ahead for what lies ahead, even your setting your mind on things above, your disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness, all of these things are an outworking of the power and the rule of the Spirit in you. And praise God for that. Our last point for the evening is that the Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit dwells in us, and we see that in verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul, directly addressing the Roman believers, after having described this dichotomy of those who are in the flesh versus those who are in the Spirit, he tells them, Roman believers, you are in the Spirit, not in the flesh. You are not like those who are in verse 7 and 8 are hostile to God and cannot please God. No, you're like those who in verse 6 are characterized by life and peace. If you have the Spirit of God in you. And if you are a believer here today, you have access to the Spirit of God dwelling in you. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead the same power can and does give the life to you to live God's way. Now, this is not a special perk that's just given to the apostles or missionaries or pastors. You don't need to have like a platinum membership in the Jesus Club 
to receive the Holy Spirit. This is available for any member of Christ's body. The Spirit of God is given to all believers, even the youngest child who puts her faith in Christ. She has the same Spirit and power who raised our Savior from the dead. Wow. And this is meant to give you hope and to give you strength in your fight against sin, that you wouldn't be discouraged even though the battle with the flesh and the old self is constant and overwhelming and wearying and can seem like an obstacle that is just too difficult to overcome. But you have every resource available to you, even the Spirit of God himself in you at all times. Take heart because your struggles, your labors, your fighting against the flesh is not a lost cause, but one that is already won because you have the best ally, the best benefactor, the Holy Spirit. You can never say, I cannot resist sin. I cannot resist the flesh because you're not like those who cannot please God. You can't say these things because of who you have in you. Christ himself, as he was getting ready to head to the cross in his final evening with his disciples in the upper room, he tells them that it's actually better that he physically leave them. Because after he does, his presence would be with them in a better way. John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Or if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Christ physically leaving the disciples as he made his ascension later on, paved the way for all believers to receive the Holy Spirit so that the presence of God would be with us in a much more persistent and beneficial way, not limited just by physical proximity or or some finite duration. Going back to our passage in Romans, notice that Paul specifically describes this as the Spirit of God dwelling in you. I don't think you can get any closer than actually dwelling in you. It's not a, a, like a 50-50 partnership where, hey, you kick in 50% of the effort or maybe 40%, however much you've got, and then the Holy Spirit kicks in the other 50% and makes up the difference. This is the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, transforming you from one who was dead to one who was alive. How, what percentage contribution did a dead person make? Zero, right? But it's that Spirit who is empowering you to walk according to that new life. So you still have to walk, but you're walking in the power of the Spirit in you. So you should have hope. In fact, even the physical limitations of your mortal body are not enough to take away that hope. Because even though your physical body will fail because of sin, even that can't take away your hope. Verse 10 says, But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So there's hope, even in the grim and unavoidable reality of physical death. Because even though your body dies, your life remains because of the spirit. One day, raising you to be with Christ, just as Christ himself was raised from the dead. Now, we're not going to get too much into the specifics of, in the details of the resurrection of believers, 
But the promise is that those who are in Christ who have died will one day be raised again in actual physical bodies that are not corrupted by sin. And instrumental in this work is the Holy Spirit who dwells in you right now. This concept is also expressed in 2 Corinthians 4.16, which states, We do not lose heart. Although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. One day, these corrupted physical bodies will meet their end. But we will be raised into righteousness and into perfected bodies through the Holy Spirit. And in the meantime, the Spirit is active changing us, renewing us day by day right now to be more like Christ. We who were once dead in our trespasses, being made alive in the Spirit and being remade in the image of Christ's righteousness. The Spirit is at work right now. Now, when our family moved into our home, we moved into a space that was largely a a blank and empty shell. There was nothing on the walls, nothing on the shelves, nothing in the front patio. The rooms were empty. The cupboards were bare. There was really nothing in our house that would indicate who lived there. I remember our first dinner, Joanna, Evie, and I just sat on the floor eating takeout using pizza boxes as plates because we didn't have anything else, not even a table. Now, eventually, we moved in a dining table and even some chairs then couch, shelves, pictures, plants. We eventually got some food in there. We changed the curtains that we didn't like and painted the walls because we didn't like the color. And over time, our home inside and out began to reflect us, our desires, our preferences, our tastes. The house began to become renewed in our image because we had taken residence in it. The house began to be transformed according to the nature of those dwelling in it. See where I'm going? When the Holy Spirit dwells and takes his residence in you, you begin to change and conform and be renewed from who you once were, spiritually dead in your sins, to what you are now someone who is alive in Christ. You become more and more renewed in his image. You put off the old sins and you put on the fruit of the spirit. Your desires change, your thinking changes, your actions change, and your life begins to take the appearance and the character Christ in you. So this is meant to give us hope. So we should take heart because if the spirit truly dwells in you, The power to change and the power to walk in righteousness also dwells in you. And that struggle that was described in Romans 7, whereby Paul would not do the things that he, he would do the things that he would not want to do. And he experienced the internal conflict within him. That's our struggle too. But if the spirit is in you, he will purge all those aspects of the old man and put on the aspects of the new man over time. And we can have hope in that struggle because the Spirit lives in us, remaking us. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful, Lord, that you have not left us without any resource, that you have left us to 
walk in righteous ways by our own strength with just the flesh. But no, you've given us your spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, you have dwelling in us, changing us, transforming us, making us into someone new. And it's through your spirit that we're able to walk in righteousness and fulfill those demands that you have for us. And it's only through the work of Christ, Lord. So Father, I just pray for the saints here, Lord, that we would remember that we have your spirit. We have hope. And for anybody who may not be saved, Lord, just pray that the spirit would convict them of their sin and their need for Christ, Lord, because they are still condemned. And the only path, Lord, being changed and made new through the Spirit of God, convicting them of their sin and turning them towards the Savior. So we ask all of these things and pray for all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.